You're listening to the RUF at Western Carolina University podcast. RUF is a campus ministry that exists to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve Christ, His church, and His world. For more information, follow us on Instagram. We're at RUFATWCU or look us up online at www.ruf.org. Thanks for listening. This week we are continuing in Genesis. Uh, We started off looking at who God is in Genesis 1, the God of creation who loves beauty, uh, is powerful, loves order, all of these things. Uh, We looked for a couple weeks at who we are. Uh, We looked at just a few verses in Genesis 1 to see that we're uh, made in God's image and we're made to to have dominion over the world, to care for it and cultivate it, uh, and that we're made uh, to be in relationship with this God. Uh, And then last week we looked at Genesis 2 and uh, God shaping Adam from the dust and the, the intimacy and honor that's there. But as we look at the world, as we look at ourselves, this doesn't, like... It doesn't match our experience, right? Like we look around the world and like we tend not to think of God as one who loves beauty, but one who's like harsh. We talked about the honor that God shows mankind, but I find that we more often think his disposition towards us is just disappointed. Rather than dominion and caring for and cultivating creation, mankind seems intent on domination of the world and just using it for whatever we can get out of it. And rather than filling the earth with images of God, we seem to view human life as cheap and disposable. And the relational unity between Adam and Eve, uh, the like lack of self-consciousness between them. I don't know if you caught the verse at the end of chapter 2, but God makes Eve and presents him to Adam and he sings the song. And the, the end of chapter 2 is, and they were naked and unashamed. Like we can't do that by ourselves. And they did it face to face. Like where has that like lack of self-concern gone. This week we're asking the question, what went wrong? If this is how God made the world and what he made us for, and we look around and this is where we are today, what went wrong? How did this perfect creation and we as God's most honored creatures go so wrong? We're going to answer this uh, by looking at Genesis chapter 3, or at least the first half of it, uh, but we're going to grab a couple verses from chapter 2 so you can follow along in your handout, or if you have a Bible, uh, you can follow along there as well. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let's pray. We'll talk about what that means. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it reveals to us about who you are, who we are, and what you've done to bring us back to yourself. Uh, Father, as we look tonight at Genesis 2 and 3 uh, and really ask the question, why did we need to be brought back to you? Uh, I pray that you would help us to see the way temptation works uh, and help us to see your pursuit of us, even in the midst of our brokenness. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, at, as you may have noticed during the series on Genesis, there's a lot of big questions that people bring to Genesis that maybe have unsatisfying answers or don't have answers. Like, what happened to the dinosaurs, right? Where do they fit in Genesis 1 and 2, and why aren't they still here? And I don't know the answer to that question. There's a lot of stuff in Genesis 1 through 3 that's left unsaid. But what Genesis 1 through 3 is doing is setting the stage for the rest of the story of Scripture. And what it sets, the part of the backdrop that it sets here is the reality of what we call the fall. Uh, The fact that even though God made the world perfect and beautiful and right, uh, because sin came into the world, now everything is broken, right? The fall has touched every aspect of life. And when we look at that and and we see, like, God makes this good world, but the serpent's there, like, right from the beginning, it can can make us ask questions about, like, why is there a snake at all? Why does he allow this temptation? All these kinds of things. Uh, But a couple of the questions that I want us to lean into tonight. Uh, First, why are there any rules at all? Right? Like, why did God even bother giving Adam and Eve any rules, any directions? Right? They can't disobey if there aren't any rules for them to follow. But here's a question for you. Have you ever seen someone who is really, really good at the thing that they do? the thing that they're good at, maybe like the best in the world. I'm talking Olympic level good, virtuoso level good. I mean, picture Simone Biles' floor routine or Lionel Messi dribbling a soccer ball. For me, what comes to mind is the time that I saw a band called the Punch Brothers in Asheville. Um, They're kind of a folk band, but also like do chamber music. It's weird. It's a mandolin, a guitar, a banjo, a fiddle, and an upright bass. And they are all fantastic at their instruments. And and I spent this concert just like watching Chris Teeley on the mandolin and his fingers are dancing and he's not even looking at the strings and he's just like interested in the rafters. And then looking at the guitarist and he's doing the same thing. And like just incredibly amazed by each of these musicians. Or I think of Sean White at the Olympics when they had those like terrible plaid suits. Does anybody remember this? And like everybody else going down the half pipe was like, you could tell they were concentrating. They were like getting hyped up and listening to their music. And they just, everybody looked like neat and crisp and clean. And then Sean White gets out there and just plays on the half pipe and blows everybody out of the water. Right? This kind of like next level out of this world skill. How did they get there? Right? How does Lionel Messi get to the point where he makes other professional soccer players look like my eight-year-old soccer team? How does Sean White get to the point where he just plays at the Olympics? Or the Punch Brothers, just like 
they're not performing. They're just like playing with their friends on stage with instruments. They get there because of incredible discipline, right? Yes, they may have some God-given talent, but what they've done is they have worked at it. They've put in the time, they've put in the hours. Look, I, I may, I don't know, I may be like incredibly naturally gifted at snowboarding. It's possible. I don't know. I've never been on a snowboard or in skis. And if you strapped me into a snowboard tonight, pretend that there's snow at Catalucci or something, if you strapped me into a snowboard and put me on the mountain, I would be immobile, right? Like you might as well just tie my legs together and leave me in the snow because it's going to be the same effect, right? Because I haven't worked at it. What I'm saying is I'm not free on a snowboard. I'm not free in a kayak, right? I'd be terrified to be on a kayak in the middle of a river. I'm not free at a piano. We have the assumption that boundaries equal oppression or somehow stifle us. But the truth of the matter is that without these people's discipline and structure and boundaries, there is no freedom in those areas. Or you could think about it this way. Picture a bunch of kids on a playground. Monkey, ball, monkey bars, kickball, frisbee, the works. And this playground is in the median of Interstate 40 for some reason. I don't know how you get to the playground, but we're imagining, so here you go. What are those kids doing on this playground? Nothing. They are huddled in the middle as far away as they can get from the 90-mile-an-hour tractor trailers that are flying down the interstate. Because even though the space is there for them, even though the monkey bars are there for them, even though the balls are there for them, like they can't, they're not free to enjoy any of them. But then picture that all of their parents show up with trucks full of lumber and shovels and cement, and they build a fence around the playground, right? And it shields from the noise and from the danger Finally, the kids are free to play. You see, we think that limitation and restriction is antithetical to our freedom. But in reality, they are conditions for true freedom. Especially when those limitations and restrictions come from one who loves us. Right? Like when the kids' parents show up and put a boundary around them, it's good for them. And when our Father who made us shows up and gives us like rails to run on, it's good for us. We'll come back to some other questions uh, at the end, but, but maybe I haven't convinced you that like, it's good that God gave Adam and Eve like, some commands before the fall, uh, but maybe there's at least like, okay, like I can maybe start to get there a little bit. But we've got this command that comes in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Right? You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then what the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 does is it walks us through the process of temptation. Right? How does it work? How does the serpent move Eve from this right relationship with God to Adam and Eve have eaten of the tree? And we're going to look at this and kind of like pick apart a bunch of the different strategies that temptation uses uh, so that we can like, better identify it in our own hearts and in our own lives, because the strategies aren't that different today than they were then. And this temptation, whether it comes from outside, whether it comes from inside, whether it's the community that we're in or the world that we live in or our own hearts or Satan himself, 
it all kind of functions the same. So let's look at the ways that temptation starts to work. First, uh, one of the strategies that's used in temptation is that there's an emphasis put on the limitations, not on the provision. Because look at what the serpent asks Eve in verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What the serpent is doing is he's ignoring the provision, right? Because in verse 16, the command starts, eat from whatever you want, except this one thing, right? And, and Satan is ignoring the provision and instead focusing on the restriction and actually blowing it way out of proportion, right? Satan asks Eve, like, did God seriously not give you guys any food? Like, does he care about you? Does he love you at all? Now, this doesn't seem like a very good strategy uh, because Eve immediately says, no, that's ridiculous. Of course we can eat stuff. Like, why would God have put us in this garden and surrounded it with food if we didn't have access to any of it? No, God has said, like, we can eat. But I, I want to point something out. Um, in verse 1, Moses writes that the serpent was more crafty. And the question that he asks doesn't seem that crafty right? Like, it's not that deceitful. It's just like, did God tell you you couldn't eat anything? It's like, of course the answer is no. Like, we can eat anything we see. But it's kind of like the way a magician works, right, with sleight of hand, where you do something over here that's really flashy and bright, and maybe like a puff of smoke goes off, or you have this pretty assistant that everybody's looking at, so that over here you can do the real trick, right? It's distracting with one hand while you deceive with the other, I think that's what the serpent is doing here. Because what he's doing is he's saying, did God really say, right? Hey, Eve, look how badly I misinterpret God's law. Did he really say you couldn't eat anything? And she takes the bait, right? She, she engages in the discussion that is now questioning the character of God. And she's put herself in the place of evaluating the validity of his commands. You see, Eve, in answering the objection, actually enters into the discussion where temptation can take place. And so now questions can come in and be entertained. Why did God say that? What could be so bad about eating from that tree? Why wouldn't he want me to know about good and evil? You see why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he instructs us to pray, tells us, pray, lead us not into temptation? Have you ever noticed that? It's not protect us in temptation or lead us out of temptation. It says, don't even take me to that zip code, right? Don't even lead me close to temptation because it's so subtle and so nuanced and yet it's so powerful that even just the question itself pulls Eve in and starts Adam and Eve down this road where they end up eating the apple. So temptation sometimes emphasizes the restrictions of God and invites questioning of God. Temptation also works by misunderstanding or misremembering God's law. Uh, you see in Eve's response in verse 2, uh, she adds to God's law, right? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But even though Eve is the one who adds to the command, right, misunderstands it, misremembers it, you don't see the serpent very mad about it. And it's not like he corrects her. Satan is happy for us to misunderstand or misremember the commands of God. 
Because if he can distract us with all the like other things that we add around the commandment and keep us from the heart of the commandment itself, then he's got us. But there's more than that. If you look at it, Eve says, uh, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent's response in verse 4 is very interesting because he says, you shall not surely die. Look back at chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan knows God's law better than we do. Right? Eve says, you know, the consequence is that we will die. And Satan says, you won't surely die, which is actually the quote of what God had said. Right? In Hebrew, it's this weird con construction. It's like, dying you shall die. And Satan remembers and knows the commandment better than we do. And he's content to let us remain in our misunderstanding. And then what he says in verse 4 shows us the last tactic of temptation, that, that it invites us to ignore consequences of our sin. He just flat out contradicts God, right? You won't surely die. It's just an idle threat. Would God really do that to you? You're a special creation. You're made in his image. He won't actually do that. But when the impact of our moral decisions starts not to matter to us, right, when the, the consequences are just an afterthought, we can be sure that we're under a heavy weight of temptation. In all of this, the temptation that's going on, what's happening is the serpent is over-promising and under-delivering. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, or the end of verse 4, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent casts God as withholding, as stingy, as unnecessarily restrictive. But oh, if they just eat the fruit then they can be free. Right? They can be like God. But here's the real tragedy of this. They already are. Adam and Eve, unique from all of creation, are made in the image of God. None of the beasts were. None of the plants were. Stars and planets and whales. Like None of that's made in the image of God. Look, angels aren't even made in the image of God. Only us. You can't get closer to being like God than humanity. And what the serpent is doing is promising to give them something that they already have. And he's promising to give them something that he actually has no power to give. But at the other end of the bite, immediately, there's a profound sense that everything has changed. We don't know what the fruit was but like, you know that fruit is sweet, right? And so you can imagine Eve taking the apple or the pear or pomegranate or whatever it was and taking a bite of it and it's sweet at first and then it turns sour in her mouth. And the same thing with Adam. Right away, Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and they hide from one another. And then they hear God in the garden and they hide from him. Everything breaks. This is how temptation works, emphasizing restriction, 
misunderstanding and misremembering God's word, ignoring the consequences, and ultimately overpromising and underdelivering. And we see it in all kinds of ways as we're confronted with temptation and the possibility of sin day after day. Right? You, you can see temptation emphasizing restrictions when the biblical sexual ethic is cast as regressive and stifling, right? rather than viewing sex as this good gift that is most fully enjoyed in the safety and permanence and whole life sharing, not just body sharing, of marriage. You see, misunderstanding when people, even us, get caught up in externals, thinking that Christianity is all about what's on the outside and putting on a good show. You see, ignoring consequences when it just feels right becomes the justification for anything that we do. And in all of it, we see sin over-promising and under-delivering. Sin says, do what you have to do to get into this academic program. Then you'll be able to rest. Right? And you know that whatever you did to get into the program, you get into the program and you're not able to rest. And now you feel guilty for the things that you did to get in. The fruit has turned sour in your mouth. Sin says, you've got to drink that or wear that or do that to meet people at Western. And then you'll have people that care about you. Right? When in reality, the, the people who are relating to you only insofar as you eat that and drink that and do that don't care about you. Right? That's the promise that underdelivers. Or give yourself to your GPA. Right? That number will satisfy your quest for validation. It's so tragic, isn't it? What we've done with the world, what we've done to ourselves. Like, this has not been a good day for me because I've been in Genesis 3 for like eight or nine hours at this point. And it's just, it's so clear on the page. Like, Eve, what are you doing? And it's so clear for us in hindsight. Andrew, what were you thinking? But when we're in the midst of it, that temptation is so powerful and so subtle, and it leads us away from God. Another question that I think this passage brings up is why this rule, right? If God's going to give Adam and Eve a rule at all, why not, like, don't eat squash on Tuesdays, right? Because then they just, like, never eat squash and we're good, right? But why this one? Why did God say, don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Does he want them ignorant? Does he want them, like, to, to remain these kind of moral children? Is he being withholding and restrictive? Well, what this tree represents is a way of life, an approach to moral choices and ethics that is marked by independence, by autonomy. It's not that God wants Adam and Eve to be ignorant of right and wrong. He wants them to learn those things, to know those things, but in relationship with him, right? Because this tree is not the source of the knowledge of good and evil. He is. And he wants them to walk with him hand in hand, not take on the burden of figuring out right and wrong on their own. But what they've done is decided to play God. Adam and Eve chose for themselves the way they should go, but instead of freedom, they found shame. Instead of power, they found fear. 
Instead of enlightenment, they found darkness. This is the way sin works. This is what sin always does. It says you can be God. You can choose for yourself what's right. You can know what's right from what's wrong. You can decide what's right or what's wrong. But the fruit always sours in our mouth. There is some encouragement in this text, though. It's just a little bit, but there is some in here. Uh, If you look down at verse 8, here's what Moses says. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Can we all agree that in, you know, whatever you think about the Bible, the way the Bible portrays God, if he asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, right? It's like me playing hide-and-go-seek with my kids, and they hide behind the curtain when it's full light outside, and I can see their silhouette, and I come into the room, I'm like, I wonder where Emmeline is. Like, they're just not good at it, right? Like, this is the sovereign God of the universe coming into the gardens like, I wonder where Adam and Eve are. Like, he knows exactly where they are. But what he does is he comes to them and he says, where are you? Right? Like, he, he invites them to respond. And to come with the, like, Psalm 51 kind of contrition that says, like, I have royally screwed up everything you've done for me and everything you've made for me. Please forgive me. I think it's so encouraging that after Adam and Eve sin, God doesn't just go, it's like, well, that was a mistake, and wipe the whole existence off, right? Instead, the first thing that God does is he shows up in the garden and he pursues them. Adam and Eve, where are you? Come back. And the rest of the story of Scripture is the outworking of that question, right? Where are you? Come back to me. It's God doing whatever it takes to bring these rebellious people back to himself. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we'll look at this just really, really quickly. Um, but this, this pursuit of his rebellious people culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I love the way that the New Testament portrays Jesus as the best of all of these characters from the Old Testament. Uh, because what happens uh, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, is that Jesus goes out into the wilderness Right? He goes out into the wilderness, and he's there tempted by Satan. Right? It's kind of this like Satan versus man round two. But instead of being in a garden where everything is full and beautiful and, and just like exploding with life, Jesus instead is in the wilderness. And in the Bible, the wilderness isn't like a cool place to go and spend a weekend, like we think of the wilderness here. In the Bible, the wilderness is a place that doesn't sustain life. Like, the conditions in the wilderness are such that if you don't get help, you get dead. So Jesus goes into the opposite of a garden and is there tempted by Satan, just the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, we read this, The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Right? Like, you've got animals there too, right? It's the garden, but it's wilderness. And the question is like, okay, what happened? Right? Because Mark just, he kind of moves on. 
after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. It's like he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan for 40 days. What happened? He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Adam and Eve had every advantage in the garden. Right? They're surrounded by God's provision. They speak with him, and they fell. Jesus has every hindrance, right? He's in the wilderness, a place that doesn't sustain life. And he's, he's living like with an experienced Satan now who comes and he tempts him. But where the first Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. He rejects the temptation of Satan. He doesn't succumb. And when he, he leaves the wilderness, when he leaves this encounter, he says, the time is fulfilled, right? Now is the time. The kingdom of God is here. And in the rest of his ministry, you see him dismantling the work of the fall. You see him rewinding the clock and, and bringing order and Eden back to, to the people that he interacts with. And it's this Jesus, ultimately, who goes to the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for our rebellion, the ways that we try to play God, so that he could bring us back into relationship with the Father. So that as God looks out at us and says, where are you? Right? Where are you? Our answer is in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're right here face to face with him. Let's pray.